I'm Alan Weiss here with The Uncomfortable Truth, and today I'm talking about risk and reward. For years, I've written about risk and reward, very important conceptions, very important considerations in management and in our lives. Uh, Talib in Anti-Fragile, which is a wonderful book, by the way, he also wrote The Black Swan, of course, Nassim Talib discussed the same phenomenon I'm talking about. He calls it uh, upside and downside, but we're talking about the exact same thing. My coaching clients ask me all the time if they should do something or not, or if a given alternative they're considering is appropriate. And about 85% of the time, I have to remind them there is no downside. There's no downside to following up with a buyer and saying, I expected to hear from you by now and I haven't. What's up? There's no downside to saying, my payment is late. They're not going to delay it still more because they're upset that you called. So usually there's no downside. The same thing occurred with my corporate clients. Yet people are not eager to do something. They refrain from doing something because they're afraid of some imaginary downside. Well, they don't even think about it. And even downsides can be mitigated. You know, I learned something even from poorly written books. Now, the downside of reading a book that you're not familiar with or that somebody's recommended and you don't really know them well is that it's not a good book. I mean, the best case I can tell you about is The Celestine Prophecy, which, you know, I don't know, was 15 years ago. Just a terribly written, stupid book. But the author did talk about energy suckers in there, and energy suckers are real, and it's a clever phrase, and it was a good way to look at people who suck all the oxygen out of the room and deplete the quality of your life. A bad theatrical experience can turn into something interesting. And, uh, you know, I remember asking my son once, uh, who's an actor and a a director and is involved in the theater very heavily, uh, we were at um, Speed the Plow, David Mamet's play, and I said, Jason, what's wrong with this repartee? What's wrong with the dialogue? There's something wrong. And he said, they're not pausing to breathe. No one can respond that rapidly, but they're reciting these lines, these prepared, rehearsed, memorized lines, too rapidly. In real life, people would breathe. I was at the Merchant of Venice with him once. Al Pacino was the Merchant of Venice on Broadway. And I said, there's something wrong on stage. I said to him, you know, sotto voce, just quiet as we were in our seats. And he said, there are too many gay men up there who aren't acting as they should in this play, and they're coming across as gay. Now, you can argue with that some other time, but it was an interesting insight And there is absolutely something to be gained even from experiences you're not enjoying. There's something to be gained, in other words, even on the downside. With the coronavirus, you know, a key phrase has been, quote, in an abundance of caution, unquote, we're closing schools, prohibiting large gatherings, and so on. Even the high risk, let's say arts groups losing money, maybe having to fold, the economy taking a beating, people in the gig economy unable to pay bills, and so on was offset by the far greater reward, which is containing the spread of the virus, preventing the healthcare system from being overwhelmed, and allowing people to be treated properly. So the question becomes, how do you calibrate risk and reward? You know, lawyers would have you never open the doors or turn on the lights. That way, nothing bad can happen legally. You'd merely go out of business, but legally you'd be safe. Risk has two factors, probability and seriousness and they should be examined separately. You don't multiply them or divide them or add them or anything else. If I go out during the winter on an icy day on walks or roads that haven't been tended to, the probability of my slipping is about a 9 out of 10. 
Ice is dangerous, and I'm somewhat clumsy on it. The seriousness is usually a two or a three. I might skin my knee, or I might sprain an ankle, but I don't break anything. I don't crack my head. On the other hand, if I take a plane ride, the probability of something happening to that plane is minuscule. It might be a thousandth of a percent or less. The seriousness of a plane going down on a scale of one to ten is about 5,000. You're probably going to die. Not long ago, a couple of months ago, a B-17, a World War II B-17 crashed here in the Northeast. It was uh, a plane that was uh, reconditioned by the Collings Foundation. And I flew on that plane, on that plane, about two years ago. And it crashed about two months ago. I was on one of the first 737 Maxes uh, ever put in the skies in commercial use. In fact, I got on the plane, I remarked, I said, what is this? And a couple of months later, bang, they're out of business, two crashes. These things happen, but the probability of a plane crash is still astoundingly low. Many business decisions go wrong because there's a bandwagon effect to pile on the benefit side, the upside, the reward side, while minimizing risk, the downside. This is especially true when we're desperate or when we operate in ambiguity. We tend to overextend, overemphasize the positive and underestimate not sufficiently calculate the negative. That's the problem with most mergers and acquisitions. Most mergers and acquisitions we hear stereotypically fail. And of course, I think that's true. And I think they fail because people look at how beneficial it will be to everyone and they don't look at the downside sufficiently. They never correctly judge or calibrate the risk. So we tend to judge the risk of an adverse audience reaction too high, however, and the probability of a receptive buyer is too low. In other words, we become skewed in how we evaluate things. When we walk on stage, our expectation should be an audience eager to hear us and happy to participate. When we walk into a buyer's office, we should figure that there's a healthy person who's on the other side of the desk, who's smart enough to be in a position of power and responsibility, who wants to see if we really have benefit and opportunity for them, if we have value. So thus, you know, pessimism and optimism are part of all this. Our mindset, cynical or positive, helps to determine our risk-reward ratios. Drawing to an inside straight, for those of you who are card players, is a low probability. But if the bet is low, then it's low seriousness. You, you, you lose a few bucks. If the bet is large, it's insane. So these are also affected by the degree of what's at risk. Gamblers, especially addictive gamblers, usually ignore the downside. The good gamblers appreciate the downside and know what the upside is, and they bet accordingly and play games accordingly. In other words, at the craps tables, some bets are much saner than others. Playing on the pass line is much better than trying to play a hard four, for example. But there are also safer games. Craps is much more in the house's favor than is blackjack. In fact, if you know how to play blackjack intelligently, the house odds are astoundingly small and you can win at blackjack in a fairly uh, constant basis. My wife does. We can reverse the obtuseness to risk reward through education. Doctors finally understanding to wash their damn hands and listening to a nurse go through a pre-surgical checklist to make sure they don't take out the wrong kidney. Probability can be reduced or enhanced by preventive or promoting actions. In other words, 
If it's likely that fire will be caused by smoking, prohibit smoking. If it's likely that a client or a prospect buyer will accept a proposal if you use examples pertinent to their business, then do your homework and put in examples pertinent to their business. Seriousness can be reduced through contingent actions, and we can even create exploitive actions for successes. So if a fire does occur, we have sprinkler systems and insurance and escape routes. But if something positive happens as a result of what we're doing, we can expand upon it. And so when cell phones and smartphones became the rage, people started making apps. They started making uh, holders and cases for the phones. They started making provisions to put it in your car, hands-free, and so forth and so on. Probability also influences our reaction to luck. If you find $100 on the ground, I don't think you plan to make your living that way the next day. At least I hope not. You say, this is odd, it never happened before, it's one in 100,000, and I'm not going to try to earn my living and and pay the bills looking for $100 bills on the ground. The flying well-enders, you know, the high wire act, tightrope, you might call it in the old days. The flying well-enders endured very high risks and still are. And several deaths, five or six or seven of their family members have died over the years for the reward of fame and income. I think the latest, as I'm recording this, is one of these Willenders is going to try to walk over an active volca- volcano somewhere in Hawaii or someplace, and, and, or Malaysia, I don't know, and use some kind of protective, <laughs> protective gear on their heads to avoid the, the toxic gases. I mean, this is crazy, right? But they think it's an acceptable risk. Some entire industries are risk-averse. Insurance would be an example. And some are risk-encouraging. Advertising, for example. What's the risk in advertising? Well, just about every Super Bowl ad I saw this last season at a million dollars for 30 seconds was horrible. Didn't do anything. It was, it was depressing. So what's the upside-downside analysis procedure that you use? Do you have one? Are you conscious of it? Do you know sometimes that you should be proceeding because there is no downside? How much risk are you willing to tolerate in return for how much reward? It's a personal decision. But remember... No pain, no gain. And as William Penn said, no cross, no crown. And that is the uncomfortable truth.